listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. My guest is Andrew Van Halton, a film distributor from New York City. He's also an award-winning producer, having been involved in the development, financing, production and distribution of over 50 films and served as an executive producer of 13 cameras and 14 cameras, both currently screening on Netflix. Andrew, welcome to Shoot It Now. Thanks for having me, Craig. Well, you're a distributor now, but that wasn't the case early on when you were a filmmaker with work recognised by the Sundance Film Festival, South by Fantastic Fest and others. What made you move from filmmaking to distributor? Well, you know, it's funny. I I do still have my hand in production. I actually have a film that, um, you know, that I just produced that's going to be premiering at Fantasia Virtual Film Festival during uh, the COVID insanity here. Um, So I am still producing films, um, but, you know, primarily focused on the distribution and sales arena, you know, because I realized that, you know, most of my time and energy as a producer after I produced a film was really in negotiating deals on my own projects and networking to help sell and and set up future projects as well as sell the current projects. So I figure why not extend those contacts and those skills set that skill set to a larger group of filmmakers. And of course, you know, having gone to film school and come up as a producer and a director, it made sense to to leverage my own network of creatives to to be able to get in their corner and fight for them and fight for their art to get homes and, and really good deals, the best deals that we could out of the marketplace. And do you feel it gives you a little more advantage over a, let's say, a traditional distributor who hasn't been to film school, made their own films, and has made that switch from filmmaker to distributor? Absolutely. I think, you know, the exciting thing about the conversations I have with filmmakers and with with media service outlets and partners on the distribution side is that I, I can bridge the gap and I know how to speak to each side of the business and the creative in a way that really, really is direct, clear, and makes sense. I think there's a lot of people who are just business people on the distribution side who don't understand the basics of you know, production or how a movie actually gets made. And so I think having gone through that and worked in the trenches with crews, as well as with uh, writers and actors and directors gives me a leg up. I, I can definitely speak the language and I can also identify why something is important for a filmmaker, albeit a, even in a situation where we're selling a movie, for example, with a, a director who's from New York and it's keen on them to have New York as one of the markets for the theatrical release. And, you know, I get how important it is to be able to galvanize the audience that, that you know, comes from the hood that you're from and, and being able to help really leverage you know, your network while releasing an independent film. So, I mean, there is, yeah, just an understanding. And I think generally speaking, you know, there is a place for both types of folks. But for me, I seem to do well navigating this business as a filmmaker that has come up through the ranks and got into distribution for sure. A real problem for filmmakers when completing their films is to come up with a plan to submit to as many film festivals 
as possible. So let's say that a film is successful and gets selected into a few film festivals and then goes on to win a few awards. Then the filmmaker will go to distributors and say, hey, we've got this film. It's done really well. It's been well received. At which point a distributor might say, well, that's really great but I wish that you had have brought the film to us first before you did any of that so that we could have devised a strategy on how to roll out to market your film. How much of a problem has that been in your experience? That's right. I mean, I definitely think it's more important to have an experienced sales rep involved because keep in mind, you know, whether it's a distributor who is partnering with you to release your film domestically or it's a sales rep that's looking to get you a distributor I think the key thing is having that partner on on board and involved to help strategize. Being able to strategize the release plan for your film is the most important part of the sales process. And again, we have relationships with programmers at festivals that many times filmmakers, especially first time filmmakers, don't have. Certain films really are required to follow that kind of festival release strategy in order to elevate them and give them the ability to compete and achieve in the marketplace through that kind of elevated recognition and stamp of approval. For example, if you have a film that, you know, is a drama and has no cast, I would always push you to get into Sundance or, you know, a major festival like South by Southwest before you would go to Marketplace. I would say I would do that with probably probably pretty much any movie. However, if you had a genre film that's a horror film, even if you didn't get into one of those festivals, there's still a market and a way to sell into the market with the, with that film, with that movie. So it really is important for films that are in certain genres to take advantage of festivals. And I also say that it's important not to just, like you said, unload your film to every single festival under the sun. I think it is detrimental if you you know, um, cannibalize your audience because they've all seen it already at the festival circuit. You know, hopefully your audience isn't that small, but in many circumstances, there are films that are really niche and, you know, there is less appeal on the commercial side for a distributor to get involved if you've already screened it at all these festivals. Generally speaking, the genre festival circuit is, you know, because genre fans are, are, there are just so many of them and it's such a large commercial market. You, you know, it is encouraged to go to as many of those festivals as you possibly can. But again, you don't really want to go to the wrong festival first. And so I always say Sundance, Tribeca, uh, Cannes, um, South by Southwest, uh, you know, Sundance, these are all the ones that are really, you know, the highlight festivals that elevate the value of your movie just by the acceptance into them. Equally important is releasing when all of the pieces are completed and ready to go. Otherwise, if you release too early, the film will have that date stamp of the year released. So if you released, for example, in 2020 and everything wasn't ready in the film, it could quickly be a 2022 when you're ready to roll it out and suddenly that film is two years old. Yeah, I mean, I think I think films... Films do age and they date. I mean, there are certain films that are period pieces, which obviously, you know, they're timeless, so to speak. But regardless, I think when you actually put that first release date, uh, you know, tied into the production itself, then the clock starts ticking and time is of essence. And so you want something that's fresh and you want something that the market is, is you know, not heard of or, you know, or is just 
starting to generate buzz. I think I think in general that is incredibly important. And I think a lot of times filmmakers get caught up in this idea of finding a better deal. And many times the first deal that they're offered is their best deal. And so, you know, I'm not saying, you know, jump on the first deal that you're given, but, you know, six months, three to six months down the road, if, you know, you play the game too aggressively, you might find yourself losing even quicker than that. You might find yourself losing a deal that turns out to have been the best deal you would have gotten. Then on the flip side of the argument, you have the distributors who will only select films at festivals. Some distributors don't even look at films outside of marquee film festivals. So how does a filmmaker reconcile with that situation? Well, I think that's where having a good sales rep involved with your movie and distributor involved with your movie you know, um, it, it, well, in this situation, it really is a sales rep, you know, the person who would be selling your film to a distributor domestically, it becomes a very valuable position because they can, they can, they can get the attention of the acquisitions team at different companies globally. And again, the main focus should always be North America first, just because North America really kind of, it is the, the, the pacemaker and the, the trendsetter for kind of what the market is going to take to. And so if you can focus in North America and get an acquisitions executive through a sales rep interested before you even get in a festival, you know, that's, that's where the added value comes in. And, and many times it's the relationship with a sales rep that can also, like I said, help you get into that festival. So I, I wouldn't say that, you know, distributors are, you know, against looking at movies unless they're in marquee festivals. I would say if you don't have the right connections or representation for your film, then yes, the festival becomes the absolute must. And it has to be a big festival in order for you to get that deal or that interest from a distributor. And again, I would advise having someone repping you going into that situation because they're like sharks in the water. The moment that you're there, you as a filmmaker are highly inexperienced in dealing with these distributors most likely. And what can happen is you can try to do it all yourself when you really should be focusing on publicity and press at the festival and not sales. And so many times filmmakers, I think, get lost on that journey of the festival you know, um, sale versus kind of thinking about it as a marketing platform for the movie. And I think the director and all the creative people and the producers should be highly focused on how they elevate the marketing of their film within those festivals versus how am I going to negotiate the best deal with the distributor at the same time. I think selling a movie to a distributor is a very specific job. Experienced producers can do it and sales reps do it for a living. So I always advise and, and mind you, experienced producers also bring sales reps on board because it gives them a little distance between, you know, their investors in the film and somebody who's handling the sale, which is never a bad thing either. North America is so critical and it does drive the international. Not all distributors have the same level of contacts and relationships outside of the US. So really important that filmmakers do their due diligence around this aspect. I think they go hand in hand. And I think in general, if you get the right domestic distributor, it's going to help you leverage into getting the best deal for the international. And so international distribution generally, you know, is is kind of feeding off of the domestic success. Every international distributor, the first question they're going to ask is what's going on in North America, because they want to know how that, that how that's going to play out. Premier VOD a few years back started to gain some favor 
And what Premier VOD is, for those that don't know, it's streaming video on demand at home, which is very close in timing to the theatrical release. So you're paying more money to see it at a home than by going to the cinema. This shouldn't be confused with theatrical on demand, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Uh, Andrew, I'm interested in your thoughts here from a distributor's point of view and whether this market has gained any traction recently. You know, it's interesting. Premium VOD had, I, I think it absolutely still holds a lot of value in the marketplace because you get premium placement on the MSOs, the media service outlets. And so it's really important to keep in mind that getting a good marketing plan together is ultimately what leads to the success of a movie and being able to have that placement on those providers platforms and also elevated price points involved are really really crucial so premium vod is achieved many times through what's called day and date um you know theatrical so where you're guaranteeing that you're going to do a certain uh, amount of markets theatrically while also allowing the movie to be available on demand and so the marketing dollars for the theatrical are helping get word of mouth and reviews going with the press uh, to elevate the sales online. And I, you know, it's crucial, it absolutely is. Now, is that to say that films that don't have premium VOD are not making money? Uh, absolutely not. There are a lot of genre movies, specifically genre films, horror films, thrillers, sci-fi films, that because of their, their tropey genres and their built-in fan bases, they can still achieve great numbers digitally, even if they don't have that premium place, placement, just based on online reviews and online word of mouth. So I, you know, again, I think, you know, I would not advise somebody to make a movie for, for more than low six figures if they're not considering how important it is to have premium VOD release involved. And many times it's advisable, I would say, to producers to say, hey, maybe you should build in a, in, in a budget so you can go, you know, if you weren't able to get an offer for a premium VOD release, you have some money in your arsenal to basically say to a distributor, look, we'll cover the cost of the theatrical markets, but you have to fight for us on the premium placement. And that's great because a distributor then is basically not having to spend the money out of pocket to handle the, handle the publicist as well as the theatrical booking that comes in, in tandem with that kind of a release. You mentioned day and date, and there will be some filmmakers who don't understand what that is. Can you explain that further? Certainly. So, you know, premium VOD is the higher price point video on demand, you know, instead of three or four dollars, it's maybe seven dollars. And so the day and date is many times what helps trigger the higher price point or premium VOD pricing, as well as placement and on, you know, on platform advertising specific to the content being released. And what that is, is a guarantee of usually in the U.S. and North America, in well specifically the United States, it's it's a ten market uh, commitment in the top twenty two markets in the U.S. And so usually that's what the TVOD television on demand providers are requiring and requesting. Um, and so it means that the theatrical is happening in those ten cities, opening on a Thursday, the same time that the film is available on demand. Now, keep in mind, this premium VOD placement that you get is crucial because not only does it start helping, you know, 
get higher sales, but also, like I said, the theatrical component helps drive real theatrical reviews. So if you have a well-reviewed film, that's going to help build more buzz around the movie, continue more word of mouth. And ultimately, what I like to describe this day and date model as is a way to kind of, you know, package up your film, elevate your film, and put it on a plate so an SVOD company can go, wow, that, that's a movie that people already like and know about. We should buy that and put that on our streaming video on demand service. And so many times what you're doing is triggering a much longer tail game by focusing on doing a day and date and also helping create more of a buzz around your movie that can, that can help lead to a larger success financially and critically. Looking at Netflix and Amazon Prime, theatrical on-demand was something up until a couple of years ago didn't really exist, but we now see films like The Irishman and others going this way. Whilst a big film like The Irishman that has a budget of around $150 million, it's being paid for by Netflix, distributed by them, an indie film that may sell to Netflix for theatrical on demand, depending on the deal, can be, under the old model of international territories, be at a disadvantage for the filmmakers. How much of a problem has this become for the distributor to navigate through SVODs wanting a multi-territory deal? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, many times the SVOD companies are going to pay more than some of the indie theatrical companies in, in the various territories. So, you know, I think as a filmmaker, you really need to start thinking more about audience and you know, uh, and also think about, you know, making your next film. And I think we all know that the day of indie theatrical is a slow dying, uh, you know, beast. And unfortunately, the reality is television and SVOD series are now becoming the new, the real, the new, really the new format of what independent film was before. And so my advice to any filmmaker would be, if you have a bird in hand and you've got an SVOD company like Netflix or an Amazon willing to buy your film for multi-territory and pay for it, I think you, you have to seriously consider foregoing a theatrical in certain territories uh, to be in business with the larger company that's going to ultimately be there uh, and potentially, you know, you know, be the, the financing uh, savior for your future projects. This is the, the shifting of the tides. The world is changing. We're in a new time, a new age, and we're dealing with different, different, uh, just different audiences. People don't love to go out to the movies like they used to. And certainly with COVID, I think post COVID, we're going to find that people are even more comfortable enjoying television and binging at home using their, you know, large screen TVs or home theaters to experience some kind of a, uh, you know, home simulated theatrical vibe. It's never the same for a big blockbuster movie. So certainly I do believe the Disney's of the world will stay in the chain theater business and the large theatrical tentpole movies will, will flourish in those experiences, but we'll have to pay for them and we'll pay for them a lot, you know, uh, with a lot more money than we probably do now even. But, uh, but that, that definitely, you know, is a, is a thing that has been changing for quite some time. And I think many filmmakers are already acknowledging that shift in the marketplace. I mean, to be honest with you, most of the films that we've been dealing with have been primarily uh, non-theatrical, um, you know, large, non-large non theatrical release. 
titles. So they've been primarily day and date releases. So generally our, our films haven't gone beyond, you know, 10, 20, 30 screens, you know, domestically. And, and yes, there have been some instances where for some smaller territories like uh, Vietnam or uh, Cambodia, there have been some theatrical releases that have happened on some of these films, India as well. But primarily, you know, most of the films we've been doing have been focused on on more of a limited scope theatrically and, and a much larger digital space. I'd say that, you know, um, the deliverable schedules too has shifted tremendously as we've gotten into the digital distribution age. And so there is a large cost savings too. Um, I mean, you know, with digital versus the physical prints that you used to have to deliver, it used to be quite costly when you delivered a theatrical film because you had to, you know, have all the elements available to the distributor. Now with digital projection, it certainly has helped with the costs and DCPs are certainly more reasonable than striking theatrical 35 millimeter prints. Um, so to answer your question, you know, I, I really apples to apples. I haven't, uh, you know, uh, had to compare the numbers so much so uh you know for us it's always been well what is the best deal on the table and quite frankly most of the deals that we've gotten that are, are worth any money have been with strong svod plays involved and no theatrical or limited theatrical i should say i was interested to see lulu wang who turned down an offer for her film the farewell from a streaming service that she didn't name but netflix was implied the offer was reportedly double the price that A24 offered, which in part was to secure a theatrical run, which this is a juxtaposition. Her argument was that her film might get lost on a big streaming platform and not be seen. The financiers and the producers of The Farewell wanted to take the deal, obviously, because it seems inconceivable that an offer for double the money of A24 was turned down. The economics don't make sense in this case, but does the rationale make sense? The reality of the situation is that I think there's a point where you have to respectfully have the conversation with your filmmaker. And I think if you're making, if you're making profit on a movie and the difference is a five to 10 or 15 point spread, and you're making significant profit, you know, two, three, four X of what you spent on the movie already. I do think there is a certain conversation that should be had with the filmmaker and, and, you know, what's more important really allowing the filmmakers film to stand out and help build their brand moving forward or, you know, taking a few extra million or who knows, I mean, how much money it is. I mean, it depends on the deal, of course, um, you know, uh, or taking a 10 to 15% larger spread on the deal and making that much more money. I mean, I remember a film we did where the director, you know, really, and I agreed with the director, wanted to license a song. And the song's license fee was a significant portion of the budget. I mean, we're talking, you know, a smaller independent film. And the decision to do it definitely ate into the profits of the, of the, of the uh, investors. But that being said, I think that the film wouldn't have done as well had that song not been licensed. I, I don't know that the film wouldn't have been able to get to where it still did in terms of the deals, but ultimately it, it really helped brand the filmmakers, you know, 
style and 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 uh, you know and help put an imprint on the movie. So so I do think there's that conversation. I mean, look, if you're a strict business person and all you care about is the bottom line dollars and cents, which you know from from a distribution standpoint, it's a tough it's a tough place to be and it's thin margins are thin. So I get it. But, you know, from a producer's standpoint, I think sometimes you really need to have that conversation and think about the longer, the longer ride and the bigger picture for the filmmaker. And as side note, the farewell is now playing on Amazon prime. I think what wasn't reported at the time was that Amazon probably secured the deal at the same time a 24 deal went through. Okay. Let's have a look at data and knowledge quantifying bums on seats with theatrical we have always had the data to gain knowledge but with streaming we are very much in the dark with the numbers as we don't have the quantifiable data this at the moment is a missing link and could be for some time when streaming services are refusing to release the audience numbers which is crucial data that connects indie producers to audiences how much of a problem from a distribution point of view is this? You know, I think that it is a problem and I think it's something that ultimately is going to get have to get hashed out very much like Variety was reports theatrical, um, you know, theatrical numbers, I think a theatrical gross box office. I think it's going to be it's going to have to be something that's less of a mystery. I think there's a lot of um protection around the information and the data because those are technology companies that in essence are are valued based on that information right and so i think they're getting far more data than we even realize um, on on us as users and i think because of that i mean i do think there should be some kind of quantification or formulaic uh you know uh reporting that happens in order to understand the value of of content within those platforms and have more transparency. I know that I had a film on Netflix called The Girl Next Door, Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door, and the film had an astronomical number of comments. And since that day, when that film was on that that site, I'm talking thousands and thousands of comments. Since that day, they've removed the comment section from Netflix. And I think a lot of it is to kind of shield the engagement factor and transparency. I don't think they want people knowing how well titles are performing because they don't want to have to pay more money to films that may be doing way better than than the producers would expect or know. Um, I certainly know that 13 cameras and 14 cameras have been very successful on Netflix. And, uh, you know, I do know that uh, they got in my mind, you know, I think they got a great deal on the films and it's great for us because we're building a brand, but I would love to know what those numbers look like one day. Um, will I get that information as a producer? I don't know. Uh, will I get that information as a distributor? I, I don't know. I think Netflix, again, is a very proprietary company. I think they know that they have, you know, as does Amazon and Hulu and Disney Plus and HBO Max, all these companies know that they're competing against each other. And if information starts getting out about the successes or failures of different titles on their platforms, it could be detrimental to the success of their own brands. 
So I think until there is a real clear-cut understanding of who the, the leaders are in this SVOD, SVOD space long run, and, and trust me, not everyone will survive this SVOD gold rush, then until that time comes, I don't think we can expect to get any more information than what we are getting as of now. And expanding on that, a distributor and a filmmaker both want to know the big question, and that is, how will the audience consume a film, especially for the filmmaker who is a storyteller and a creator of intellectual property? They will want to know how many people watch their film and when they watched it. And without shared information and transparency around this, that makes it very difficult for getting this crucial information. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, look, I, I can definitely say it's nice seeing that more money is being spent on digital distribution and acquisition and payments to film producers uh, than three or four years ago. I think it's a much larger and more accepted market by the consumer now. It's becoming the premier market. As we shifted from physical VHS DVD goods to a much more seamless digital uh, you know, interface and distribution model, we found that users and people in general are far more willing to, you know, again, consume technology on their uh, content on their phones, as well as on their computers and televisions. So people are now watching far more content than they used to in the past. And with that, distributors are making far more money than they used to in the past. The only thing I think is sh that has shifted is the amount of money each piece of content generally, generally receives. Um, because there's so much more content in the marketplace, the value for content has obviously diminished by and large. That being said, there is a, a larger market for content too. So I think, you know, look, it's a matter of time and filmmakers getting smart about how much to spend on films. What used to be the $2 million film before may now be the quarter million dollar film. And the indie success that used to be the Blair Witch Project that made over $100 million at the box office may now be The Wretched, which made over a million dollars in drive-ins during COVID. So we're looking at a much different world, a much different model. And I think the success of filmmakers is ultimately going to be leveraged to get them to go on to make television series and or studio theatrical content. It's interesting to me that only 20% of people in the world have movie theatres less than 25 miles from their home. So I attribute one of the growth factors for streamers like Netflix and Amazon Prime with a convenience factor for the 80% of people who have to physically get into their car and make the longer drive to a cinema. Previously, there was no option, so if they wanted to see a movie, they got into their cars and went. Now there is, which is a worrying aspect for cinema chain survival. What do you make of what is happening in that space from a distributor's point of view? You know, I think what's happening is that there are a lot of companies that had too much debt load and they didn't really have a real business model other than kicking the ball down the field that are going to fall by the wayside. I think there's a handful of wonderful distribution companies that are going to uh, navigate these waters, whether it's you know the IFCs of the world, the Gravitas Ventures of the world. I think we're, we're in a time and an age now where it's inevitable that studios are going to, I think, buy theatrical, theatrical chains, the larger chains, and create the exit to the gift shop model. So I think 
again, if you're going to travel 25 miles or take an hour out of your day to get to a movie theater, you're not going to want to just see a movie. You're going to want to go and experience a whole kind of, you know, um, movie plus, uh, you know, a merchandising experience wrapped around it. So, you know, families will, will go see the new Disney film at a Disney theater, I think. And, and ultimately, you know, you know, be able to exit through the gift shop and buy all that wonderful merchandise and have characters in the hallway and the lobbies that they can interact with. I mean, there can be all kinds of things that are built up, events that are built up around these screening theatrical, um, theatrical screenings rather. So I, I, you know, look, it's changing tides, changing times. And I think, you know, if you look at some, something, a company like Amazon that is integrated into our lives globally, there's no reason why they can't integrate product into an exit through the gift shop type of experience at their theaters as well. So, I, you know, assuming they buy a lot of theaters and Netflix, I know for a fact, is starting to buy movie movie theaters as well. So so I think, look, the indie indie theaters, the indie chains like chains like in the, in the Alamo draft houses and, you know, the smaller chains in different countries across the world will truly have to become the indie theaters where, you know, independent film is, is the only thing that is being screened there. And I think that the, the studios will only program their own films and content as well. I don't think there's going to be a hybrid where you get studio movies integrated with independent films, um, you know, in any capacity. I think what you will find is an independent film will be bought at, at Sundance and then it will be screened in a large studio theatrical setting through a studio. But I don't think you're going to find those smaller independent films that are, you know, distributed through indie distributors landing in those big theatrical situations. So COVID is almost like a perfect storm for independent cinemas to be gobbled up by some studios and now streaming services, which is a, a real shame because then we have some of these really unique cinema owners and everything that they did, which was unique, forever being lost. I think studios are likely to buy the larger chains that are, are built with a larger infrastructure. I mean, look, that's not necessarily true, though, because I know that the Paris Theater in New York City was purchased by Netflix. So and so was the Egyptian. But again, those are pretty marquee theaters in prime real estate markets. So I think, you know, it's less likely that smaller indie chains would be purchased by the studios. But like, I, I think the larger the larger chains such as like, uh, you know, AMC theaters or Regal Cinemas. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if those chains didn't get purchased by studios. P&A is such a big black hole for indie filmmakers when talking to distributors, especially if a distributor tries to build in a 50 to 100k P&A budget. Some of this can now be done with social media and the reality of marketing your film has got to be done a lot smarter than previously. So for an indie filmmaker looking for a great working relationship with an honest distributor, perhaps lay out for some of our indie producers and film directors listening to this podcast, some of the minimums a film distributor can offer and some smarter ways p spending can be formulated. Look, I mean, I've heard of campaigns where $5,000 on Facebook ads is the, the max they're spending on these movies, and the movies seemingly find some kind of an audience and, and have some success. But for every one of them, there's probably, you know, 50 to 100 that don't have that success. So I think it really is a numbers game from a distributor's perspective. 
And I think ultimately the you know most important thing for a filmmaker is to really you know leverage their own resources to help supplement whatever the distributor is doing. If the distributor, if you can't get a big distributor that has a multi, you know, million dollar or you know hundreds of thousands of dollars behind their P and A or marketing plan, then then they've really got to just be willing to get in there and fight with the, the distributor to get as much press as possible. I think being smart these days and leveraging PR, you know, I think that's a great way, you know, to find to find press and audience. I mean, there is an interesting uh, film called Unsubscribe. It's a short film these filmmakers in Long Island made, and he was able to get uh, some some recognizable talent, Charlie Tahan from Ozark, and a couple TikTok stars as well as uh, YouTube stars to be in a short film. And this gentleman went ahead and four-walled the theater, which means rented out the theater and and you know could sell his own tickets and own all the box office himself. He did this for a Wednesday night, and he made enough money to become the number one film in America during COVID. So. He probably spent twenty six thousand bucks to buy all the tickets, and of course, he got to keep that money because he had paid the theater the rental fee. And so, he ended up reporting that and became the number one movie in America. And the amount of press that he's gotten has driven him to have so much success that he's making money on his short film now. Uh, the film is, you know, you know, doing great, and it's been on Vimeo. Uh, you know, making him. Uh, you know, enough in rental income to be able to uh, download to rent, you know, to, to, to make his budget back in profit. So I think, look, you have to be creative. You have to think outside of the box and you have to think, why is my film unique and what sets it apart from any other piece of content in the market? Advertising tends to roll out around four weeks out from a release. I think there's a six, yeah, four to six week lead time. I mean, you know, I, I, I actually like to, uh, when I'm producing a movie, generally I like to have it happen you know, at different stage, stages of pre-production, production, post. I like to tease the press every step of the way. And that has always worked well for me. The market has become very fragmented now. There has never been a more disruptive period in the cinema world than what is happening right now. A lot of indie films have been obliterated as a result, whereby 10 years ago, they would have found an audience. As a distributor, how have you managed through this time we live in? I think the key thing has been to be as honest and uh, open to talk about the reality of the market as possible. When you're dealing with filmmakers, not not being you know, not being untruthful about the potential of what the reality in the marketplace is. And I think if you can be as transparent as possible, and you know. It, as honest with them as possible, then I, I think you can really build on a great partnership and find a way to uh, achieve success. And I think there are different levels of success. I think a lot of times distributors don't think about the, the longer term picture or the relationship with the filmmakers, where I as a distributor you know, and a producer have always valued that more than anything. And above all else, I think that that's the most important thing that needs to survive the distribution of the movie. And so if you look at it from a human perspective, I think you can find uh, the strongest release for the movie. And, and look, not everything is going to be gangbusters and work out the way you want it to. But at the end of the day, if you can say, hey, you know what? We went out to everyone that we should have, and we know that the deal we have is the best deal in the marketplace. 
then I think then you're you're really making the best step forward and you're you're you know look baby movies are like babies you have to at a certain point you have to raise them they grow up become kids and and when they're 18 they have to you know go out and fend for themselves and movies are like that you have to at some point let your movie get out there to the world and let it kind of uh, you know success uh, succeed or fail uh, you know on its own merits and I think it, it you know, if you do everything right, at least the people that, you know, you know, will want to see the film will actually hear about it and know about it. It's so important for filmmakers to understand its audience. It's one of the first things a distributor will be interested in knowing. And if you can't understand your core audience, that is problematic. Some filmmakers don't articulate successfully to distributors what their film's vision is. How often have you encountered that? That's the thing. Filmmakers are very um, creative and very caught up in their vision of the project. And, uh, you know, look, I, I've been a filmmaker and on that side of things. And then I see a poster of my film and I go, man, it doesn't feel like the movie that I'm trying to, you know, get out there. And so what I try to do when I work with filmmakers is find the happy medium where we're communicating the message of what we need to to get people interested in the product. Um, and I hate referring to a film as a product, but at the end of the day, when we're putting a poster together, that's what we're selling. We're selling a product for people to watch at home or, you know, watch in a theater. And I think the key thing is to to really think about it. Well, who are the people that want this film? You know, and so I think it is a matter of like how do you how do you get and, and marketing is fun. Honestly, marketing is a lot of fun. Positioning is a lot of fun. How do you get that edgy new fresh feeling to something and still make it feel familiar enough that people want to see it and tell us a little bit about 13 cameras and how the marketing started yeah 13 cameras was great um asia film festival based on that screening and a couple early reviews i got involved with that film and then it was a matter it was initially called slumlord and i remember the distributor our partners on the distribution side because I was the sales rep on the film, were very keen on, and I was, you know, an executive producer on the film, were very keen on having it appear higher in the in the MSO ratings, you know, in terms of like if it's a number or A through B, A through C, it would be higher up in the search functionality on these platforms. And so I said to the guys, let's come up with some lists. And the filmmakers were open to, you know, to coming up with a new title. And I ended up coming up with a title that they they ultimately decided on, which was such a cool thing. I, I love the fact that I got to help name the film. 13 Cameras was the title that they chose. And, you know, it lent itself to a, a franchise and sequel, obviously, because um, all you had to do was do 14 cameras and <laughs> you're off to the races. And 13 Cameras, once we had that title and, and then the poster artwork, which was all about making this iconic horror villain, you know, once you had those two elements together, it just clicked. I think you had this kind of nuanced technological, you know, vibe to this genre-y, creepy, you know, horror iconic, like, guy that was dominating the poster. And I think those two, those two aspects really clicked nicely and it, it lent itself to something that, you know, uh, millennials and other folks that enjoy films on Netflix could enjoy. So 15 and 16 cameras are coming soon? 15 and 16 cameras i you know i would like to think we're gonna we're gonna do certainly a 15 cameras but uh you know 
it really comes down to my partners in the franchise. You know, I pushed them hard to do 14 and luckily enough, it came together and we were all very successful with the film. Um, you know, I think uh, we'll have to just take a deep breath and see, but I think, I think there's a good hope for Victor Zarkov to do a, a 15 cameras. At no other stage in filmmaking history have we had more content than we do right now. Interestingly, I have kept putting off doing a podcast channel for the last three years because I was just too busy with projects, but thought I had to get this started because there's a new generation of new filmmakers right now that are knee-deep in the industry trying to navigate through the pitfalls. So how challenging has that become given the amount of filmmakers out there creating this vast mountain of films and for you in choosing which movies to distribute? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is like how many, you know, how many of these films have had early success? How well are they produced? I, you know, how interesting are the stories? Do the filmmakers have something to say? And is there a larger voice kind of emulating through these films? Originality is very keen, but also understanding of the marketplace and the fact that you're making entertainment. So I think I think there are a lot of factors to go in the decision making process. And ultimately, when you shake a film through those through that through that kind of test you know you 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 decide pretty quickly as to which ones are are worth the time and which aren't and just how optimistic are you feeling andrew for the future you know i think there's always going to be a desire for content more now than ever i think that there are going to be a lot less superstars than there used to be coming out of the independent film space i think there's going to be a lot of working writers and directors but the age of these kinds of auteur directors that could have these Sidney Lumet type of careers. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a different world now. So I think, I think there'll be people who are working in this space. I don't know that you're going to have as many superstars as we used to have. The market has just exploded so much that I think there's a lot of eyeballs. There's a lot of noise to cut through that noise. It's a lot more challenging and difficult. Having a look at film production in the U.S., or rather the lack of it, what are you seeing and hearing right now? It's unfortunate, and it's something that we're going to have to deal with, and it's absolutely going to impact the below-the-line jobs. And I feel mad. I feel the the people I feel worse for the worst for right now are the you know all the grip and electrics and all the below-the-line career employees that have to deal with not having work right now and unemployment is starting to run out. There was a $600 bump on unemployment rates to help people that expires at the end of July. And I think it's it's just devastating to see the, the people that have saved, worked so hard to save money doing this business and helping helping the careers of so many writer, director, producers move forward, suffer right now. And so, you know, all those people who work in sound, uh, you know, DITs, uh, grip electrics, like I said, production designers and art directors and set decorators and costume designers and, you know, uh, seamstresses and, you know, all of these people who are the backbone of our creativity are the ones who are going to feel it the most and are feeling it the most. And I really you know, I, I know on the heels of coronavirus, once we we finally get through the, the fog of all of this insanity and hopefully a new president in our country as well in November, my hope is that we turn a corner and there's an explosive uh, need for content to get into production immediately. And, I you know, look, I wouldn't be surprised if people who are out of work right now struggling make two, three, 
years of income in a matter of you know in a matter of months event or certainly a matter of year a year or so they can make two three years of income just based on the desire uh, to hire the best people to get things going again there's going to be a real need and competition to to get crew people and I think there there's going to be a, an explosive uh, side to it on the finance uh, you know on the finance side of it so it, it'll be interesting for sure well, Andrew, thank you so much for your insights into film distribution in this new era of indie filmmaking and getting work seen by filmmakers. And all the best for what is left in 2020. And I wish you and your team at 79th and Broadway Entertainment all the very best moving forward. And thanks for coming on to Shoot It Now. Craig, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again soon. You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.